want to turn to 2 Samuel chapter number 1, verse number 17. Read a passage of scripture. This is actually words of a funeral by the psalmist David as he's writing regarding Saul and Jonathan who have perished, passed away in a battle. And this is a lamentation of David as he is lamenting over Saul. Could have had different response to Saul because Saul so despised him because of his own internal problems and situations and Jonathan his son. So let's read 2 Samuel chapter 1 verse 17. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan his son. Also he bade them teach the children of Judah to use the bow. Behold it is written in the book of Jasher. This is the lamentation. The beauty of Israel is slain upon the high places. How are the mighty fallen? Tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ascalon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. Ye mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew, neither let there be rain upon you nor fields of offerings. For there is the shield of the mighty is vilely cast away, the shield of Saul as though he had not been anointed with oil. For the blood of the slain from the fat of the mighty the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan were lovely and pleasant in their lives and in their death. They were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you in scarlet with other delights, who put on ornaments of gold upon your apparel. How were the mighty fallen in the midst of battle? O Jonathan, thou wast slain in the high places. I am distressed for thee, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant hast thou been unto me. Thy love to me was wonderful, passing the love of women. How are the mighty fallen, and the weapons of war perished. On three occasions, he speaks about the mighty being fallen. I want to take an, an excursus of Saul this morning an excursus, a discussion of Saul. Lord, we thank you and praise you today. We ask that your presence and ability would continue to draw us, help us to absorb your anointing and your word today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless you. You can be seated. Sometimes we catch what we do by looking at what not to do. Sometimes what we learn is consistent with seeing individuals making wrong choices. Seems like the tragic events seem to shape public opinion more than faithful, consistent examples of godliness. You open up your newspaper, what you're going to find are many stories and examples of negativity. It's not too often that on the pages of the front pages are things that are honorable and there's more honorable things being done in the world than dishonorable things. But that doesn't seem to captivate the attention as much. And so here for a short excursus today, 
I want to look at an individual whose leadership was exemplified by the things that you should not do. Saul reigned for 40 years, and he presents to us the most egregious case of failed leadership in all of the scriptures. He didn't start that way. He had opportunity. How could a kingship with so much promise descend so rapidly and end with tragic consequences? And so for a brief moment of time today, I want us to look at the life of Saul. And I want us to recognize some of his failures and shortcomings and difficulties that led him away from the call of God on his life. I'm convinced here today that the call of God in your life is the most important thing. I've been on that recently, but we need to get to the point where we're not under the call, but we're working and we're operating through his spirit for a call of God in our life. God has called you. Amen. Somebody say, God has called me. He's called me. He's called me to be involved in the kingdom of me. He's called me to do, not be a spectator. God didn't call you to be a spectator. God did not call you to sit on a pew and reap the bless blessings of God. This is not what Calvary means. Praise God. If you're doing something in the kingdom of God, keep doing it. If you're doing nothing in the kingdom of God, evaluate the inventory and the priority of your life because the calling of God on your life is for you to put your hand on the plow and start plowing. Praise God. It means I need to do something. Well, I'm, I'm of a different personality. I. It doesn't matter what your personality is. You're, you're doing other things. You're working, you're in an occupation, you're in a world, you're doing other things. You're a parent, you're a dad, you're a mother. There are offices that you are working. So why do you do so much for a world, but yet you don't do anything for the kingdom of God? You got you to gotta recognize somewhere that God has called me to be doing a work of God, and so I'm going to do the work of God. I'm going to find it. Nobody's going to have to tell me where it is. I'm going to get in the mix of it and say, I'm going to take ownership of this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to be involved in this. What is it? It's the call of God, and it's important. Age doesn't matter either. I'm past the age of being used. No, you're, you're not. God is going to use each and every one of us. And so the calling of God is so very, very important. And Saul, 40 years he was, he was king. And he started, he had it all. He had everything. He had nobility. When you read his beginning introduction to us in 1 Samuel chapter 9, it describes, nothing is happenstance in the scripture. So when you read an introduction like this, it means something. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zoror, the son of Bekorath, the son of Aphiah, a Benjamite, a mighty man of power. There's a description there. This man was, he was, he was somebody. And then it said he had a son whose name was Saul. 
So there's a description that he's coming from nobility. It's not describing somebody that is an unknown. It is describing somebody with a history and a genealogy. And this is how we are introduced to Saul. He was a choice young man and a goodly. And there was not among the children of Israel a goodlier person than he from his shoulders and upward, he was higher than any of the people. He was an individual of nobility. His stature set him apart from everybody else. Saul started with good things. Saul, Saul started with a, a talent and an ability. Uh, he's, he came from the right uh, nobility. He had the right stature. And when tasked to find his father's lost donkeys, we get an insight into the way that Saul starts. He's very obedient. He starts looking for his father's lost donkeys. He can't find them. He searches all over Israel for them, and there is no result. And so his servant suggests to Saul, why don't we seek out the seer or the prophet or the man of God? And he's here in such and such a place, and, and so they agreed and made a determination, and this is his first connection with the prophet Samuel, his first meeting with Samuel. And Samuel, upon this meeting, has a word for Saul. He says to Saul, you are going to be the captain over Israel. This is coming at a period of time in Israel's history. They're moving away from just the voice of the prophet. And Samuel is an integral part in that. They've moved into the promised land. There's conquest. There's a man of God, a prophet. But now they're looking at the nations around them. And because of the failure of that, that central place of tabernacle and Hophni and Phinehas and Eli and the destruction and the validity and the credibility to the priesthood, people start looking elsewhere. And they want a leader. They want leadership. Many times we view this as a negativity. Samuel certainly does. They have chosen the gods and kings around you, and they have forsaken you. And so he internalizes this struggle, but there was a failure of the priesthood up to the time of Samuel. Uh, 369 years, that temple or that tabernacle, not a permanent temple, but a tabernacle of more permanent residence, sat in Shiloh for that amount of time. And that history revealed that there was a breakdown in leadership. And so people started looking elsewhere. In the far reaches of Israel, in Dan, they erected a false god. And they included syncretism, which was trying to worship God and the gods of Baal and Asherah and, and, and false idols and, and worship, Canaanite gods. And so they were looking for leadership. There was a vacuum. There was a void. And so Samuel already knew this was taking place. God had already been dealing with it. And so when he meets Saul... In this first introduction, he says to Saul, Saul, you're going to be a captain over Israel. Now, I want you to notice how Saul responds. In 1 Samuel chapter 9, in verse number 21, he, he's got the stature, he's got the nobility, and he has the right attitude. Verse number 21, Saul answered and said, Am not I a Benjamite of the smallest of the tribes of Israel, and my family the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin, wherefore then speakest thou so to me? Paul is not pursuing a spotlight. 
Paul, Saul is not trying to achieve some kind of position. Saul is, is in his initial responses, saying, I'm just from a small tribe. Who am I to be called the captain over Israel? I'm not pursuing that. And Samuel tells him what's going to take place and speaks to him about you're going to meet a group of individuals. Some prophets are going to meet you. And you're going to greet them in a hill country, a company of them. The Spirit of God's going to come over you, and you're going to prophesy. And, and Saul ponders all of this. And he makes his way, and lo and behold, he meets a group of prophets coming down from the hill country. And when he leaves Samuel, the Bible said that God gives him another heart. God is working on him. God is shaping him. Nobody ever gets to a place of position without God first trying to do some things in your life. Elevation to a position or to a status without the hard work of God molding and shaping you is, is a recipe for a disaster. You, you got to do what you need to be, what needs to be done. Praise God. Sometimes when you go to work somewhere, you got to work your way up. I, I'm fascinated, very fascinating by the model of UPS. I'm very fascinated by it. Why? Because when they hire people, they hire people, and the first thing that you do is you work your, if you'll allow me to say it this way, you work your rear end off. You're loading boxes. It's early in the morning. It's difficult work. It's tiring. And you do that for how many years? I don't know. How many years did you do it, Brother Dustin? Three and a half years. You do that for three and a half years of doing that. It's hard work. But you got to do that, and they're doing it on purpose. Why are they doing that on purpose? Because they want to see, do you have the stuff that we're looking for? Are you made of the right metal? Do you have the ability to be here at the right time? And do you have the, the ability to work hard? And if you can work hard for three and a half years, then we'll elevate you to a place that we feel like you're ready. It's much like that in the calling and the work of God. You're never going to be elevated to a place that you first haven't proven. And the proving part, it can be fun and sometimes it's not so fun. The proving part is hard work. It's stuff that you have to work out, dig out. It's stuff that you have to... Sometimes you meet with great heartache, pain, and anguish, and then sometimes there's great blessing in it. But God is proving, he's molding, he's shaping, and this is what he starts to do with Saul. He gives him, he changes his heart, he changes his mentality. Saul meets this band of prophets coming down, and just as Samuel speaks to him, he starts to prophesy this Saul. This Saul that said, who am I? I'm, I'm of little significance so much so that they started saying, who's his father? Therefore, it became a proverb. Is Saul also among the prophets? He's prophesying. When he made an end of prophesying, he came to the high place. And his uncle came to him, started talking to him and said, where did you go? And he said, well, I'm looking for my uh, dad's donkeys. I'm searching for them. And I couldn't find them. So I met with Samuel. And I, I spoke with Samuel. And his uncle said... Well, what did Samuel say to him? His uncle recognizes something. If you meet the prophet of God, there should be more to this story. But Saul keeps it to himself. He, he's humble. He, he doesn't want to speak about it. He's, he's not out on the soapbox talking about the fact that I prophesied today. And he, he kept it a secret. He tried to retain it. He's approaching things in the right way. He displays 
a clear call. He displays impressive talents. He, he displays, he has humility. And he's surrounded by gifted and godly men. This early stage of Saul. When troublemakers despise him, he's forgiving and he doesn't retaliate. We can read this in the history that is played out in Samuel. He's upset with righteous indignation when the Ammonites threaten Jabesh Gilead. And he proves in the midst of all of that to be a skilled military leader. In 1 Samuel chapter 10 and verse number 20, when Samuel had caused all the tribes of Israel to come near, the tribe of Benjamin was taken. And when he caused the tribe of Benjamin to come near by their families, the family of Matri was taken. Saul, the son of Kish, was taken. And when they sought him, he could not be found. Therefore they inquired of the Lord further if the man should come thither. And the Lord answered, Behold, he hath hid himself among the stuff. Saul, when it came time for the anointing of God, he was hiding. He didn't want to go there. He had humility. He had stature. He had nobility. He had everything. He had everything that he needed for good leadership, and he was approaching it in the right way. When it was time for his anointing, you couldn't find him. Why? Because he was out hiding among the stuff. They anointed him, and Samuel said to the people, See ye him whom God hath chosen, that there is none like him among all the people. And the people shouted and said, God, save the king. He had everything in the beginning that he needed. He had the nobility, he had the talents, he had the goods, if it will. Never neglect the calling of God in your life. Constantly nurture it and never ever take it for granted. Never neglect the call of God in your life. Praise God. Constantly nurture it. Never take it for granted. Don't take for granted the anointing of God that we felt here this morning. That's part of the calling of God, his anointing. Don't take that for granted. Nurture it. How do I nurture that? By worshiping and, and moving into that atmosphere where God can mold and shape me. This is one of the reasons why I like to see people get out of their pews. What are they doing? They're nurturing. Can I nurture it standing here? Yeah, you can, you can, you can. But in my opinion, there's something to be said about the person that says, I want to get out of the comfort zone that I'm in. I want to nurture the things of God. This is why prayer is important. This is why the scripture is important. Because I'm nurturing the calling of God in my life. When you plant stuff, you have to plant it. You have to take care of it. And you have to nurture it to see it grow. You can't just put something there and think that that's it. I can walk away from it. No, you've got to plant something there, take care of it, and nurture it to see it come to fruition. Some things that happen in people's lives, it's not because God is looking at them differently and despising you. It's because God has recognized they are faithful and they're nurturing some things. And out of that nurturing comes blessing. Comes blessing. The reason why they have what they have is because they've nurtured the call of God in their life. Don't despise them for what God is doing in their life. 
Don't look at them narrowly for their talents and their abilities. What they've done is they've nurtured those talents and abilities over time, and the blessing of God is there. And there is a, there's a blessing that comes with that. Saul, if he would have nurtured that calling, if he would not have neglected that beginning, if he would have taken time out to say, I'm not going to neglect some things because these things are important in my life, we would have a different story. He started right. He was the right person. God didn't make a mistake. Samuel didn't anoint the wrong person. He was the right person. And God chose you because you're the right person. I just don't know if I fit in. Yes, you do fit in because God called you. And if God called you, there is a place in the kingdom that God wants to utilize your abilities. Samuel had, man, he had, he had, he had everything, that, the perception that we would look at and say, that's what takes to be a successful individual. The turning point is his big skirmish with the Philistines. Samuel chapter 13 and verse number 8 there's a turning point in Samuel's or in Saul's life he starts right but he, he turns 1 Samuel chapter 13 and verse number 8 there's a skirmish with the Philistines, the Philistines if you're looking on a map and you see Israel and there's the heart of Israel and you see the sea on the Mediterranean Sea on the eastern side down right in the corner just above the curve around Egypt into what is now uh, known as uh, I can't think of the name it's not the West Bank but it is where all the rockets are flying Gaza Gaza is sitting right in the area of Philistia and so there's always these skirmishes. And so there's this big skirmish. And Saul, proving that he has the wherewithal, he defeats a company of the Philistines, and they gather together, and there's a huge number. And so that number alone creates some concern on Saul. And so he sets himself in array, and he's waiting for Samuel to come and pray. Apparently, this was something that was carried over from the children of Israel coming into the promised land and praying about what God is going to do and what they should or shouldn't do before they go into battle. And so King, is, King Saul is carrying that tradition of waiting for the prophet to come and pray and inquire, should we go up to battle or, or, or not? And he tarries, in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 8, he tarries seven days according to the set time that Samuel had appointed. This is 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse number 8. But Samuel came not to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. And Saul said, Bring hither a burnt offering to me and peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. And it came to pass that as soon as he had made an end of offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him, that he might salute him. This is, this is crossing a major boundary line here between the priesthood and the prophet and the king, the captain of Israel. It's not the responsibility of the king to be offering sacrifices because, because Paul or Saul becomes nervous in the midst of all of this. He's waiting. 
People are getting antsy. And so he decides to take matters in his own hands and operate as he is in the office of the priesthood. And Samuel, when he sees him, says immediately to him, what have you done? And Saul said, because I saw that the people were scattered from me and that you came not within the days appointed and that the Philistines gathered themselves together at Michmash, therefore I. You notice how this works? He started, he started perfectly, humble, noble, stature, right attitude, not approaching things indiscriminately. But the turning point that we can, the first turning point that we see is when Paul takes, Saul, excuse me, takes matters in his own hands and then watch what he does when he, when he greets Samuel. He points the finger at the people that were scattered. He points the finger at Samuel that didn't come fast enough and that the Philistines were gathering together. In other words, it's not his responsibility. It's the people's fault that they were getting nervous. And it's Samuel's fault that he didn't arrive on time. And then the Philistines are gathering. So now he enters into some kind of weird superstition thing where the Philistines are there and, and, and God is, needs to be concerned about that when God is never worried about the Philistines or any other opposition or in, enemy before. Now Saul is taking all these things in his own hands. It is so egregious. This, this is troubling to me. It is so egregious him crossing that boundary and then pointing fingers at everybody else. Let me, let me just say this. When you get in a fix, don't point the finger at somebody else. When we get in trouble, the first thing we want to do is blame it on someone else. We want to take on some messianic complex. We want to retain some kind of victim mentality. God didn't call you to point the fingers at somebody else. Just because the man of God didn't show up, Saul, doesn't mean that you can start doing things that are outside the boundaries of what you should be doing. And don't point your finger at the people because they started to get nervous. You're the king. You're the captain. You shouldn't be worrying about what other people are doing. But now you're pointing the finger at them. This is a curse of our world. And it gets into the church sometimes. Well, I did what I did because of they did. That's not the message of Jesus. Jesus never took the complex or the idea that somehow when something was done to me, I should return it the same way or I have an excuse. I need to say, you know what? I'm the one that was the problem. I'm the one that was the difficulty. I'm the one that had the failure. I'm going to take responsibility and I'm going to make it right. This is the difference between Saul and David. You look at David's life. David was a mess just like Saul was a mess. David made all kinds of mistakes and had all kinds of failures. But the difference is he took responsibility for his action. He pointed his finger at Samuel. He pointed his finger at the Philistines. And he pointed his finger at the people. And, and this is what troubles me is that, I mean, at some point he said this. This is amazing. I said this then, after I viewed all those things, the Philistines will come down upon me, and I have not made supplication unto the Lord. I forced myself, therefore, and offered burnt offerings. So egregious was this 
Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God. And now your kingdom will not continue. The Lord hath sought him a man after his own heart, and the Lord hath commanded him to be captain over his people. That was so egregious of a line to cross and such a turning point that reveals in Saul's leadership he, he refused to wait. He refused to wait. He refused to wait. Sometimes, sometimes God puts you in a position for you to wait to see how you're going to respond to it. If you get impatient like Saul, you end up doing foolish things. In the midst of where I am, God, I, I may not see the outcome that I want. I know where I want to go, and I don't feel like I'm there. I feel like I'm wandering in a desert here, but in the midst of all of that, I'm going to wait on the Lord. Because in waiting on God, God is molding me and shaping me and providing the credibility that I'm going to need so that when I get to that point that I can see in my mind's eye that I'm praying for, that I'm seeking, that's a calling of God in my life. When that day comes, it's all going to link up and make sense. But you got to wait in the moment. You got to wait in those difficult times. When everybody else wants to go out and do this and do that, you got to find somewhere where you center and lock yourself in the calling of God and say, God, I am going to wait here. I'm not getting impatient. I'm not getting impetuous. I'm not trying to pursue and grasp something that is not within my grasp. I want your anointing in my life. And so I'm going to wait on you. Praise God. God's got something for you. He's got something for you, and there's a calling, and there's, there's some things in, in your dreams and that you would like to see come to fruition. Wait. Yeah, but I'm getting older. Don't worry about it. Just wait on God. You get impatient. You're going to try to open doors that you should not be opening. And behind those doors are consequences behind the decisions that you made because you are rushing things. When God's waiting for you and he's got a plan for you. Sometimes it doesn't come on our time frame. Praise God. Saul couldn't wait. He refused to wait. He was moved by fear of man. He rationalizes his action. And from then on, he's always trying to hang on to something that's not his. He issues this ridiculous oath about not eating any food in the heat of battle. Jonathan didn't hear what he stated. Jonathan is fighting. God brings a great victory to Jonathan. He takes some honey. The oath that Saul gave is that nobody should eat until I'm avenged of my enemies. At what point, Saul, did it all become about you? <laughs> nobody eats because I'm going to be avenged. That's the dumbest, the, the dumbest tactical mistake that you can make when you're in the middle of battle and people are famished. And so Jonathan doesn't hear this, doesn't know this. They're so famished, the people are so famished, the men are so famished, that when they defeat the Philistines, they take of the spoils, and they're so famished. 
Saul moves them into a position to violate the law. They're so famished and hungry that they start eating the meat that they get in the spoils of the war and they eat the blood that's in the meat. That's, that's, a, that's a violation of the law. But Saul's the one that forced them into that. Then, Saul wants to continue the conquest. Everybody's famished. They're tired. He wants to avenge his enemies. Nobody responds. The people don't respond to his leadership. Because now it's all about him. It's all become about him. So because there's no response, he brings the priest, an unnamed priest, and he wants an answer from God. I'm going to get an answer from God. We're going to continue this, this, uh, this battle and this regime. And there's no response. There's a disconnect between Saul and God because Saul has neglected something. That's not a good place to be when you're trying to get an answer from God, and there is none. And so he moves forward by casting lots, trying to figure out what's wrong, and he finds out that Jonathan has actually eaten of the honey, and he is, he's fixing to kill Jonathan. Somewhere we, we have violently turned from it being about humbleness and the approach to God, and now we're turned into this egocentrism. It's all about Saul, rapidly descending into it. He's going to take Jonathan's life, and guess who rose up and said, absolutely not, that would be insane. Who's the one that has been defeating the Philistines all over the place? Jonathan. He's going to rise up and say, you can't do that. You can't do that. He's losing his credibility. His big failure is his partial obedience in the Amalekite campaign. He's supposed to destroy everything, and what he does is he gives God the weak and the despised things. He rationalizes his disobedience by feigning spiritual motives, and he places the blame on others. Watch this. This is some of the most fascinating reading in the scripture in 1 Samuel chapter 15 and verse number 1. Watch what happens here. Samuel also said unto Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint thee king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore hearken unto the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I remember that which Amalek did to Israel, how he laid wait for him in the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and spare them not, but slay both man and women, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. Saul gathered the people together and numbered them. 200,000 footmen and 10,000 men of Judea. He came to the city of Amalek, laid wait in the valley. Samuel said unto the Kenites, Go, depart, get you down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you. And so, in the midst of all of this, verse number 8, he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the store. But... Saul and the people spared Agag, the best of the sheep and of the oxen, of the fatlings and the lambs, all that was good and would not utterly destroy them, but everything that was vile and refuse, that they destroyed utterly. He gives God that which is vile and refuse, but he keeps the good stuff. 
God doesn't want you to give him the leftovers. He wants you to give him the best. Saul violates this principle. I mean, there's not a tithing thing there, but yet there kind of is. I'll take care of all the stuff, and then if I've got enough down here, then I'll pay my tithes. It won't work that way. It doesn't work that way. It's God, you've given me everything, so I'm giving you this at the beginning, and then you're going to take care of everything else and bless that. You're never going to get anywhere when you give God the crumbs and then expect God to bless you. And, and this is what Saul does. Samuel says to him in verse 11, It repenteth me that I have set up Saul to be king, for he has turned back from following me and hath not performed my commandments. Saul got so enamored with himself, I, I didn't notice this, but in reading this, I came across this in verse number 12. When Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set him up a place and has gone about and passed on and gone down to Gilgal. Saul created a memorial for himself. He's created, he's defeated the Amalekites, and so let's, let's build a memorial for that. And yet he leaves things undone. One of the most famous passages of Scripture and words that can be found when Samuel comes to Saul and Saul says, Blessed be thou Lord of the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Samuel said, What meaneth then this bleeding of the sheep in mine ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? And Saul said, They have brought them, they, they, they have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. They, 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 they. We'd have revival if they would worship. We'd have revival if they would get a burden. We'd have revival if they, it starts with me. It's not someone else's responsibility, it's my responsibility. I wish somebody would worship. Why don't you worship? <laughs> my responsibility to worship God. My responsibility. Saul points it on someone else. He blames someone else. Samuel says, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. If Saul would have stayed with the word, don't deviate from the word. You've got a word of the Lord. Don't deviate from that. If he would have shown true repentance without finger pointing, then God's presence would have continued in his life. But repentance was a worldly sorrow. It was all about getting caught. The turn in Saul's life, he started right. Then he got convinced of ego, and then ego starts leading him into great malfeasance. Position and status and formal authority yields great capacity for great disaster. Samuel's departure moves Saul from egocentrism, it's all about Saul, to delusion. When God says to Samuel, I want you to go anoint 
another man, Samuel, the prophet, fears for his own life from Saul. Saul is tormented by evil spirits of his own doing. And as the spirit of the Lord is coming upon David, it's leaving Saul. You know what? You can do great things when the Holy Ghost is working through you. You can do some pretty terrible things when it's not. And it's leaving Saul. It's coming upon David. Notice the contrast between David and Saul. When the people are terrified by Goliath, I'm convinced Saul at an earlier time in his leadership would have taken on Goliath. But when there's no Holy Ghost, you become very fearful to face some giants. Praise God. If I'm going to face some dysfunction and difficulties in my life, I need the power of the Holy Ghost in my life to face them. There's going to be some giants. They're going to come. They're going to breathe threatenings. They're going to be there. They're going to yell out over the valley. And if you're a David, you're going to say, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? Is there not a cause? But if you're Saul and there is no Holy Ghost, you're staying in your tent. You don't want to fight. You don't want to move on it. You want to stay where you are. The devil has you right where he wants you and the Holy Ghost is not operating in your life. Now what's fascinating is when the Holy Ghost is leaving, the Holy Ghost is elevating. Now Saul becomes what? He becomes jealous. Don't get jealous of people that are full of the Holy Ghost and God's doing great things in their life. Examine yourself and say, wait a minute, is there something wrong with my spiritual life it's causing me the conflicts, the struggle, the pain, and the enemy rolling over me time and time again. Maybe it's because I need the Holy Ghost, and I need to stop looking at everybody else and say, God, fill me with your spirit and anointing so that I can accomplish the things of God. Amen. Saul becomes jealous. Jealousy sets in. How ironic. His behavior becomes pathetic. He chases David all over. He throws spears at him. The people favor David because of his victory over Goliath. And even Saul's own men prophesy in order to caution him and put on the brakes. The most egregious thing that happened, as we come to a conclusion today, in Saul's downward trajectory is at some point he is so obsessed with finding David and chasing David. David has gone to the priest's house. He's gone to Ahimelech's house. He's fleeing, he's hungry, he comes in, he eats of the showbread, and he also recognizes that there is something there in that place. It's the sword of Goliath. He goes back and he takes that sword because it was a great victory. But in the process, Doeg the Edomite is there. Doeg the Edomite was employed by Saul. Doeg the Edomite. Doeg's not an Israelite. Saul has become so confused in his thinking and his leadership that now he has brought in Edomites to operate in his inner circle. Man, 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 man. Don't go out and grab something from the world and bring into your inner circle and think that somehow that's going to push the ball forward. It's only going to create more problems and difficulties. Doeg goes back to Saul and tells Saul, I know where David is. I saw him at Ahimelech's place. 
So Saul and his men go to Ahimelech and accuse Ahimelech of deception. Ahimelech stands in the face of death and recognizes the ability and the servitude of David. In the process of that, Saul turns and says to Ahimelech, you are going to die and all of your father's house. And the king said to his soldiers that were standing by, slay the priests of the Lord because their hand is with David because they knew when he fled and they did not show it to me. The servants of David wouldn't do it. Saul has become to the point where he is a deranged lunatic. How do we veer off of, of, of such a great start to a place where you're going to destroy and kill 70 priests? His men won't do it. And so guess who he turns to? Doeg the Edomite. And Doeg the Edomite fell upon the priest and slew on that day fourscore and five persons that did wear a linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priest, smote he with the edge of the sword both men and women, children and sucklings and oxen and asses and sheep in the, with the edge of the sword. This is Saul that started out, but he veered an excursus on Saul. Lessons that we can take in terms of we ourselves and the calling of God in our life. I got to make sure that I'm humble. I got to make sure the calling of God is important in my life. I've got to make sure that the Holy Ghost is operating in more life. Or I could take the same trajectory of the tragic end of Saul. Finally, Saul, because of all that he's done, is tormented and troubled. He turns to a medium. He turns to a necromancer, which is someone that speaks to the dead. He outlawed them at the beginning of his leadership, but now he's taking in all these things and he's turning to all this stuff. He disguises himself. He goes to her with two men. She recognizes who he is. And he asks her, this is the weirdest passage in Scripture, he asks her to bring up from Sheol, the place of the dead, Samuel, so that he can speak. Strangely, Samuel appears and speaks to Saul and tells him that he's going to lose his life in a battle with the Philistines and so will his sons die with him. He becomes so astonished by this that he falls over incapacitated and it's strange. There's a lot of theological debate about what happens there. Was that really Samuel speaking? Was it a spirit of Samuel? These are things that Saul's dabbling in that were off limits to Israel at all. These were not things that he should do. So Samuel, what's going on here? <clears throat> it's fascinating to, to think of it this way. God can bring up from the grave and God can take down to the grave. So he, Hannah prayed that, and she said, he's a God that brings up from the grave, and he's a God that takes down to the grave. He's God. And so however you want to view that, God brings up from the grave, and he's going to do it again, right? He's going to bring up from the grave. And he uses somehow 
a necromancer to speak to Saul and say, Saul, your days are finished. Your days are numbered. Position, I'm finishing here this morning. Someone just come give me some keys. That's all I need. Position without power. Status without the Holy Ghost. Authority without credibility can create some major, major problems as it did in Saul's life. You know, we've picked at Saul so very, very much, but can you imagine the weight of expectation that the children of Israel put on Saul to be the first king? He wasn't prepared for it. He didn't hold up underneath it. It was too much for him. But he could have, he could have if the Spirit of God was operating in his life. If with his position, the anointing of God was there. He had the status as king, but if it would have been coupled with the Spirit, he had the authority, and God was already working on his credibility. Somewhere it became about him, became about his ego. Instead of letting the Holy Ghost operate in his life, he let himself get in the way. And the point here this morning is this. If you're sitting there thinking today, what does this have to do with me? I'm not pursuing any level of leadership, although God has called all of us. Here's the point today as we stand together. This is the main point. This is it. This this is the final statement of everything that has transpired to this point. The point is that Saul, it wasn't that Saul made mistakes because Saul made mistakes. The point is it was how he dealt with the mistakes. It wasn't that he made mistakes because he made mistakes. It was how he dealt with the mistakes. How you deal with the mistakes is the game changer. Because all of us are going to make mistakes. Anybody here that's perfect, please raise your hand. See me after church. Let's have a conversation. I want to know what you're doing. Everybody makes mistakes. Everybody has shortcomings. That's part of the credibility. That's part of the working of God in our life. Praise God. I don't judge you. I'm not going to judge you, Brother Kaufman, for the mistakes you made. I'm going to judge you on how you deal with that. You start finger pointing. I don't want to be around that. There's a righteous judgment that could come on that quick. But if you say, it's me, I'm the one that made the mistake. Both hands up. I'm the one. I'm not pointing fingers at anybody. I'm taking responsibility. And when you deal with those things, God can use that. God can use that. I said God can use that. He can use it for his glory and his honor. It's not that he didn't make mistakes. It's how he dealt with them. That's the difference between Saul and David. David made a myriad of mistakes. People like to elevate David. Ooh, ooh, he's a man after God's own heart. He's a king. He's a hero. He was a mess. But he dealt with the mistakes in his life. It drove him to an altar. You can read it. And he 
says to God, the altar is a better place than searching out a necromancer. It's a better place than turning to magic. I'm going to take myself to the place in which God can speak to me. And there's a direct line of God into my life. I'm going to keep the Holy Ghost in my life. I'm going to keep the spirit of truth in my life. The comforter is going to direct me. I may not be perfect. I'm striving for something. But I want to deal with things the right way. And that's what Saul could not bring himself to do. It's the man of God's fault. It's Samuel's fault. You weren't here on time. It's the people's fault. It's the, there was always an excuse. He never dealt with it right. I'm telling you, as we approach communion, it's a great communion service and leadership all wrapped up in one ball of yarn. As we approach a very, very important day, Let's all examine ourselves and say, God, I don't want to point fingers at anybody. I want Calvary to do a work in my life. Praise God. If I've done wrong, it's because I've done wrong. Man, you could find all kinds of reasons for why you do stuff. That's justification. That's what Saul was so good at it. The reason why I just lit off with a bunch of curse words is because that moron cut me off. Listen, listen, listen. Can have a lot of opportunities of people doing things that are crazy. Someone did something crazy and defaced the front of our building that is very, very tragic. <laughs> Brother Brett Grogan had to clean it up. I think he did. You're going to have situations that, that, that cause a lot of things in your life, but how are you going to deal with those circumstances? How are you going to deal with this is just who I am. I'm an Irishman. Well, get over being an Irishman then. Don't use that as an excuse. Difficulties come and struggles come. I'm going to deal with those in the right way. And that's what Saul in his entire life never, and he kept repeating it. He kept repeating it. Are you going to have some of those circumstances? Are you going to do some of those? There's a lot of things I wish I could take back, really. I mean, all of us would, right? What God calls us to do is he calls us not to try to be perfect and say, well, I've made a mistake, not to finger point, but he calls us to say, I want to take responsibility for that. Praise God. Amen. Let's lift up our hands and our voice and let's pray that prayer together today. Lord, I thank you and praise you. Amen. There's pe good people all over this congregation, people that have made mistakes, mishaps, shortcomings. Their emotions have gotten the best of them. What have you? That's really not the point. The point is, what do I do with the situations in my life? Praise God. Do I take responsibility? Do I ask you to help me, to direct me? Praise God. Amen. Don't put... God. I feel, I feel the, and the Holy Ghost to say this right here. Don't put a lid or a cap on your ability and the calling of God because of something that you have done in the past. you hear me? I said, do you hear me? I feel like I'm in the Holy Ghost when I say this right now. I don't care what you have done. Don't put that thing on top of what God wants to do in your life. You make things right and you say, I'm going to deal with this right and God will rip the cover off of that.
Don't shortchange yourself and say, well, I can never be what I need to be because people know. It doesn't matter what people know. It matters with how you deal with the difficulty. That's what matters. People forget stuff in six months. If you find an altar and you bury your face in an altar and you get up with humility and you say, God, it's my problem and it's my wrong. Six months, they won't even remember any of that stuff. What they'll remember is you dealt with the situation the way that you were supposed to deal with it. And if that's the case, let God rip every barrier and boundary that would ever come in your mind as to you being used or not used of God. Man, I feel the Holy Ghost. Some of you have a lid you think, well, you know, everybody knows this is my circumstance, this is my failure, this is my difficulty, this is my... so I'll never, I'll never reach the status of gaining any credibility. People are not looking at your failure. They, they will for a period of time, and if they get stuck on it, God help them get off it. They will for a short period of time, but really what people are going to look at, what's going to make you credible, is you dust yourself off, you get off, you find a place of humbleness and you seek God, people will see that and recognize that and they'll forget every, they, 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 they'll actually run to your defense if you approach things right and the call of God is on your life and you'll be able to use those experiences and do great things for God. It's the lie of the enemy to say you can't be used of God because you got this stupid temptation. I don't care what the temptation is. Rip that off. If you're approaching God in the right way, God can take homosexuals. God can take lesbians. God can take people plagued with all kinds of temptations and difficulties and use them if all those things that come their way. If you haven't read Sister Rebecca Monk's book about identity and integrity, it's fabulous. First chapter is gold. When the devil tempts me with stuff and causes me to stumble and I'm struggling with stuff, that doesn't define me. What defines me? What defines me is an old-fashioned altar. That defines me. Calvary defines me. The blood of Calvary defines me. It's not that I have shortcomings and difficulties. What matters? Praise God, praise God, praise God, praise God. I could preach a whole nother message here and I've, I've gone over time. I apologize for that. But I want to say it one more time. Don't put a lid on your ministry, personal ministry, whatever it is, because of things that you have done in the past. Deal with those things. Watch God do great things in your life. Saul, never, he never learned that. Because of that, he was an abject failure. It's one of the worst examples of leadership in the scripture. Don't take an excursus on Saul. Praise God, but let God do great things in your life. Lord, I thank you and praise you. I speak faith into somebody's heart and life here today. I speak faith into my own spirit because when I start taking inventory of my own self, I, man, I'm chagrined, I'm pained, I'm troubled.
God, what you're calling me to do today. And you're calling us today is to deal with the situations in the right manner. I want to be close to you. I want to be drawn by you. I want to be called of you. Praise God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen, 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 amen. Oh, I feel a heavy weight here today. One more time where you are. Come on. Let's pray together.